You're listening to a podcast produced by the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the EU Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit our website at jsis.washington.edu forward slash cwes euc. Good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm Rishat Kasaba from the Jackson School. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this evening's uh, presentation. Uh, I'm really happy to have Dilek Kurban here. Dilek Kurban is a Marie Curie Fellow at the Hurley School of Governance in Berlin. Uh, she's also a member of the European Commission's Network of in Independent Experts in the Non-Discrimination Field. Uh, she's a legal scholar with research interests in the European Court of Human Rights, legal mobilization, forced displacement, minority <coughs> rights, and human rights abuses. Uh, before uh, uh, going to Europe uh, in Turkey, she was uh, one of the leading figures in an important NGO in Turkey, uh, TESEV. And that's when I first met her, actually. She was still involved in projects there. And through her, actually, connections, we've got a number of very good graduate students at the University of Washington. And I want to thank Phyllis and, and Estra for um, helping uh, put together this, uh, this visit by, by, uh, by Dilek. I um, also wanted to thank uh, other sponsors of this event, uh, Center for West European Studies, Center for Global Studies, Center for Human Rights, Middle East Center, and the Department of Political Science. So I'm very happy that all these good people brought their energies and resources so that we could have a distinguished scholar uh, like Dilek, uh, who is here. Um, and she will be talking about perpetual transition, how Europe has failed in democracy promotion in Turkey. And this transition has really been perpetual, pretty much covered my entire life. <laughs> so, <laughs> so thank you for coming, and Dilek Kurban. Um, good evening, everyone. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, thank you very much, um, Professor Kasaba. Um, I'd like to thank you and all the other um, organizations, um, centers involved in uh, organizing um, and hosting this event, of course, the Jackson School. Um, and of course, special thanks uh, to Phyllis Kahraman. And she's been, um, she's, she's really the uh, uh, person that really got me here and has done so much to put this together. And I'm very happy um, to, you know, to be here with Esra Bakavosholo, my um, former colleague in this organization that Veshat Bey uh, mentioned. So those were the good times we're talking about it, you know, when we were all uh, involved in democracy, human rights in Turkey, when we thought that something special was happening. Um, I will be uh, talking about, um, so this is really, uh, I'll, I'll try to give a sort of a summary of uh, a book that I'm um, working on. Um, what I'm looking at is really the relationship between Turkey and the European Court of Human Rights, European institutions in general, but especially the European Court of Human Rights since the end of um, the Second World War. So it's a, you know, sort of a process-oriented history. I'm telling a story, basically. Um, and I'm engaging primarily with two um, literatures. One is 
Kurdish, uh, my one is legal mobilization. I'm looking at the way in which Kurdish human rights lawyers use the right to individual petition to litigate before the court, so this bottom-up you know, mobilization. And also the judicial impact literature, right, looking at um, the, you know, what the European Court has said and what kind of impact it has had. Um, but I won't go to those details today. I'll try to sort of, as I said, um, if I can, um, give a sort of a broader, broader um, picture. So we start with this lady. Um, she's Taibeti Nun. Um, she was a 57-year-old mother of 11. On 19 December 2015, at around 7 p.m., she was shot dead by the Turkish security forces. Um, this happened outside her home in the Kurdish city of Silopi. It's a small town in the Kurdish region. She was on her way back from visiting a neighbor across the street. Her crime was to be um, out um, on the street to step out during a round-the-clock curfew in the Kurdish region. Um, while she lay wounded in front of her doorstep, her family called for an ambulance, which never arrived. Her brother-in-law, Yusuf, then um, went out to help her, and he too was shot when the moment he stepped out. The co family called the emergency um, line, and they were um, asked for an ambulance, again, which never lie. And then they called again, and they asked for authorization. They said, well, at least let us leave um, to bring an ambulance ourselves. And the authorities said, yes, you can leave. It will be safe as long as you carry a white flag. Um, which is they did, uh, what they did, they obliged, but were nonetheless shot at several times. After several failed attempts, the family watched Tibet and her brother-in-law, Yusuf, bleed to death. Yusuf um, uh, was alive for 20 long hours. The family was able to retrieve Yusuf's body from the courtyard into the house, but Tibet's body remained out on the street with apologies for a rather um, graphic photo. So this was her. She stayed there for seven long days. Um, her dead body lay in front of her house while her family repeatedly begged the authorities for permission to retrieve and bury her. Once again, the family was told that they could leave with a white flag. They obliged only to be shot again. Tibet's husband got injured, Halit. One of Tibet's sons later wrote, quote, my mother remained on the street for a whole seven days. None of us could sleep. Worrying dogs would come around, birds would perch on her. As she laid 150 meters away from us, we too died. On 25 December, Tibet's body was finally taken from the street by the authorities to the morgue of the local hospital. When the authorities buried her 18 days later, they allowed only two of her children to be present at the funeral. Her husband and nine children were denied a farewell. She also was buried without a religious ceremony. Five months before these events, in July 2015, the Turkish military had launched a security operation in the Kurdish region. It went into these densely populated civilian areas, residential areas, with thousands of combat-ready troops, tanks, armored vehicles, and heavy artillery, allegedly to remove um, the barricades and trenches that PKK um, or its affiliates had built in these residential areas. From August onwards, the government declared round-the-clock um, open-ended curfews in more than 30 towns and neighborhoods, which lasted several days, weeks, months. Over one million people were locked up during this process um, without access to food supplies, water, electricity, power, and emergency health services during long, cold winter months. No one, including the sick, the wounded, the disabled, the elderly, pregnant women, was allowed to leave without authorization. Breaching the curfew was not only very risky, as we saw in Tibet and her family's case, but also subject to monetary fines and or imprisonment. 
um, domestic and international humanitarian aid workers, human rights observers, parliamentarians were denied access. Journalists who tried to enter were threatened, arrested, and in at least one case, shot. In two cases reported in the media, dead bodies of two presumed terrorists were dragged behind an armored vehicle and, in the case of a woman, displayed naked. The most alarming reports came from the town of Jizre, which is what you see, where over 100 people sheltered in three basements, surrounded by the security forces, who, and they were allegedly burned to death. We still do not know what exactly happened there. And then the buildings collapsed. Witnesses and family members of victims interviewed by UN Human Rights Office of High Commissioner painted an apocalyptic picture of the wholesale destruction of neighborhoods. This is in quotations. According to the OHCHR, uh, during July 20, 2015 and December 2016, so some 18 months, some 2,000 people were killed in the curfew areas, 12 of whom were civilians, women and children. Many of them died for lack of emergency health care, as Tibet and her brother-in-law. Um, and here, actually, you can see areas, these are satellite images, which were completely raised to the ground. Right? Over 355,000 residents were displaced, and numerous people were disappeared, tortured, subject to the excessive use of force. Not only did the authorities fail to open a single investigation, but accused the deceased of being terrorists and retaliated against their families, charging them with terrorism. Individuals trapped in the curfew zones, facing a real risk of being killed, did what um, um, people would precisely do in a um, country which, is, um, which claims to be democracy under the rule of law. They went to courts, right? They requested first the Turkey's constitutional court to issue an interim measure, measure, sort of immediate relief, by ordering the government to end the curfews and to either cease the military operations or carry them out in accordance with international legal standards. One after another, they failed. The constitutional court rejected all these um, requests. According to the court, there was no serious danger requiring an interim measure. The court did not even review whether the curfews were actually legal, let alone engage in a proportionality analysis. Well, the European Court of Human Rights was there, right? The road to this court was still open. Um, and the petitioners next went to Strasbourg. Um, human rights observers in Turkey were particularly hopeful, especially um, after the Council of Europe's own Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, Mujinex, um, expressed in November 2015, expressed concern about frequent and widespread curfews, as well as, quote, the chronic problem of impunity concerning the actions of security forces. Yet the ECHR also rejected the request for interim measures. The court, the Strasbourg court, relied on the decision of the Turkish Constitutional Court, which it found to be, quote, relevant and potentially capable of providing interim relief for the applicants. Tibet family, Tibet's family was also among the petitioners. They first went to the Constitutional Court and later to the European Court of Human Rights. When their petition reached the Constitutional Court on 6 January 2016, um, her body was taken off the street by then. At that time, the family requested a very specific interim measure. They asked the court to enable them to you know, retrieve the body, um, uh, uh, sorry, to allow them to uh, bury Tibet with um, a religious ceremony. Right? So that's what they were asking. Despite the urgency of the situation, the court did not respond at all. Um, well, then the family went to the um, European Court of Human Rights asking for interim measures from this court. Um, the day that they petitioned the Strasbourg Court, the government adapted, uh, amended a regulation 
which stipulates that bodies not claimed by families within three days will be handed over to local councils or local governors to be buried. On 8 January, the family petitioned the uh, ECHR. That night, the authorities went to her family home and asked his illiterate son to sign a document, which, of course, he couldn't read. It was later found out by the family, actually, that signing that document, he authorized um, the authorities to bury Tibet um, without the family in their own choosing. Um, so by the time the rest of the family was informed, it was too late. Tibet was buried by the authorities. The lawyers informed the European Court of Human Rights about that and asked a very specific interim measure from the Strasbourg Court. They, this time they asked the court to enable the family to at least hold a religious ceremony by her grave, the grave that the authorities chose. The ECHR rejected. On 2 February, nearly one month after filing of the petition, the Constitutional Court finally issued this decision rejecting the request. Um, on the grounds that she had already been buried. Okay, so the question is, how is this all possible, right? The gross human rights um, abuses occurred in a country which not only ratified the European Convention as early as in 1954, but it's actually among the drafters. Turkey was among the drafters of this convention. Uh, it has been um, subject to the, what is termed as the um, world's most effective human rights regime. Um, since then, um, and um, had recognized the compulsory jurisdiction of the, court, the world's most effective court in 1990. So basically, mm -hmm. Turkey has been subject to the oversight of the European Court of Human Rights since 1990. And then, of course, we have the EU, right? Turkey has accession status since 2005. Um, and how do countries receive this um, status when the EU concludes that they have fulfilled the Copenhagen political criteria, among which, of course, is rule of law, human rights, protection of minorities. Um, the, according to Ms. Nix, this is the Commissioner of Human Rights of the Council of Europe, these gross human rights abuses that occurred in the Kurdish region in 2015 and 2016 were strikingly parallel to, the, to um, gross human rights abuses of the 1990s. Um, then, of course, we know that in a recent referendum um, that was, um, uh, uh, in a re recent referendum, constitutional amendments were approved. Um, which now um, allows a transition, Turkey's transition from parliamentary democracy to a Turkish-style presidential system, which, of course, the Venice Commission has found to be um, to cite the danger of, um, uh, of a move towards um, authoritarian and personal regime in a recently released report. And then, you know, you have, um, uh, we know the journalistic um, freedom situation. I mean, we can, of course, multiply these examples, right? But this just sort of uh, gives a... a um, Gives, gives a broad um, picture. And also to add, in July 2016, there was a failed coup attempt in Turkey, after which um, tens of thousands have been uh, um, arrested. Um, more than over 100,000 people have been dismissed from uh, the public service. Among those who were dismissed and arrested are also two members of the Turkish Constitutional Court, um, who have been in pre-trial detention since July, and the rest of the bench um, agreed with the government on the necessity of this, and they refrained from um, uh, of, uh, refrained from um, uh, reviewing this this um, executive decision. So the question that I'm trying to um, you know raise in this um, book is basically the research question is you know we're in authoritarian regimes where the state is engaged in violence against the minority um, or minorities. 
in the context of an ethno-political conflict and claiming uh, legitimacy from counterterrorism, what are the possibilities and limitations of consequential engagement by a transnational human rights body? Right? Um, as O'Donnell puts it, you know, where the majority subjugates minority to low intensity um, citizenship, is there really a role for transnational human rights bodies to correct some of these deficiencies? And I am taking the ECHR and its involvement in Turkey's Kurdish conflict as a case study, really, and hoping to draw some general conclusions for other um, authoritarian regimes and other regional um, uh, human rights courts. Now, it's really, um, this is quite actually puzzling. Um, when you look at the, um, the literature on the European Court of Human Rights, there's of course a substantial literature. Turkey is invisible despite this, right? Despite being there from the beginning. Um, Halfer and Slaughter, you know, the, 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 their, their um, article on, on the court is accepted as an authoritarian study, you know, on the effectiveness of the court. And, you know, they characterized the court as a remarkable success. Um, and actually in doing that, uh, and they admittedly based their study on Western European countries, right? And they said, you know, this was partly due to the relatively few minor and discrete violations. Um, that, that's why the court has been effective. Um, this article was published in 97. By then, Turkey was already known to the international community as a repeat offender of, of gross human rights abuses in Cyprus in the 70s, which resulted in three different petitions to the European Court of Human Rights. Then, of course, there was a 1980 coup d'etat in Turkey, which resulted in a three-year-long military regime where thousands were tortured and systematic human rights abuses. Of course, the Kurdish cases also, um, which um, actually the first judgment um, uh, of the European Court of Human Rights was issued as early as 1996. Even if they weren't aware of this uh, judgment, the Cyprus question and the post-military uh, coup d'etat was known. Um, and yet, there's no mention of Turkey in this, um, in this study. Um, and this really affected the literature in, a, in, a, in an unfortunate way. Uh, in their otherwise very valuable um, contribution, Cavallero and Brewer, actually, they, their articles about the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, and they're arguing why, rather than the ECHR, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights is more equipped to deal with gross human rights violations after the accession of the cast of, uh, of post-communist countries, right, in the 1990s. They basically took Halfer and Slaughter's argument at face value. Um, and argued that you know, the, the European court faced the challenge of real structural gross human rights violations only in the 21st century after the fall of communism. Right? Um, when you look at sort of more recent um, interdisciplinary studies, they look at the interplay of law and politics, and these are really very um, 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 you know, inspiring studies, um, because of course it's never about the law, right? It's always about law and politics, really. Um, and in this edited volume, you know, Matson has written a chapter which is really interesting, discussing um, the impact of the Cold War on the European Court of Human Rights' case law, right? Um, but, but his discussion is limited to Spain, Portugal, and Greece. There, sort of, uh, the court's involvement in these cases uh, during the military dictatorships. Again, there's no, virtually no mention of Turkey at all. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, Madsen does talk about interstate cases, which you know, I'll get back to um, soon. Um, and, you know, he argues that the court actually showed that it would just not tolerate the kind of human rights abuses that you see in Latin America in, in, these, uh, in these decisions. Um, I think this, um, 
the invisibility of Turkey um, rests on a false dichotomy, really. So there's this binary understanding of the old member states and the new member states, right? So the old member states um, are, though, are those, you know, they're established democracies, um, rule of law, etc., and their legal systems needed little fixes, really, fine-tuning, right? So we weren't talking about sort of gross big problems, human rights problems. And then you have the new member states, post-communist, which um, needed really structural guidance from the court and which really challenged the court's effectiveness. Um, and you see this in constitutionalist um, scholars um, and also democratic transition scholars. Stone Sweet, for example, you know, talks about the first phase of constitutionalism. You know, he says after the end of the Second World War, you saw sort of new constitutions made in Western Europe, and there was a basic formula that was adapted in these constitutions, right? Bill of Rights, Judicial Review, written constitutions, um, etc. Um, and then comes the second phase of constitutionalism, and that's the post-Cold War era. Um, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, Sadursky, for example, in his discussion of um, the European Court of Human Rights and the Polish Court especially, you know, he says basically the, the, these countries, these post-communist countries, introduce cases of dramatic urgency requiring the court to deliver constitutional justice. There's a big debate now, both in the scholarship and also among the practitioners in the court circle, about um, whether or not the court should actually cease to provide individual justice but act really like a quasi-constitutional court and uh, give guidance, more general guidance. And that's what Sadursky's, um alluded here. As you see, I like the word perpetual. <laughs> so it's interesting. There is, of course, some, there are some studies that recognize Turkey as an exception, right? They do see very few, um, and they do see, okay, there's a problem here. Greer, for example, talks about this, that, you know, there's an authoritarian democracy that presents a problem. Um, but when they do that, literally, Turkey is either a footnote or a parenthesis. So they're sort of mentioning, you know, passing by. Um, and it's really interesting because these are theoretical uh, this is theoretical sc scholarship, right? So these theories are generated on how effective or not Turkey, uh, the ECHR is without counting the Turkish factor. And I find that um, actually quite interesting. Um, of course, it's a big gap, right? I mean, first of all, the old new dichotomy doesn't hold. As I said earlier, Turkey was there from the beginning. The basic formula doesn't hold either. Um, Turkey's first, um, uh, Turkey adopted the constitution in 1961, 1960. Um, and um, which was then amended in 1971 after the coup, and then you have the 1982 constitution, which was adopted by um, the military junta. These are authoritarian constitutions. Okay, the 1960 constitution is a big debate, but it has Bill of Rights, etc. Uh, but also had authoritarian um, components to some uh, extent. And this formula just didn't work, right? Um, although Turkey adopted constitutions really early. Neither does the, uh, uh, the, this whole linear understanding of, um, of democracy uh, has hold. Um, O'Donnell actually in 96, uh, he wrote, you know, he said, there's something wrong when you're talking about transition for like 60 years, right? I mean, the fact that these countries are, right, um, has been in a protracted state of consolidation during Reshat Bey's uh, lifetime. <laughs> well, then there's a problem here, right? Um, yes, well, not to allude to, uh, well, that you said it. I didn't say that. Um, so, um, so in reality, of course, um, there's never been a transition in Turkey, not from war to peace, as we see, right? The war continues, not from authoritarianism to democracy. Um, and very importantly, this post, the, the military regime, you know, which reigned between 80 and 83, before they stepped down, they created an, a constitutional and legislative framework which still governs Turkey. 
Our constitution now is the constitution that was drafted by the military. Of course, has been amended series, uh, several times, you know, especially in the last uh, 10 years or so, but it's still the same constitution. And you have laws governance, governing basically all walks of public life in Turkey, from media to broadcasting, elections, etc. And they were all the making of the military junta, right? Um, and of course, there's this, uh, you know, what uh, Neil Lane, I mean, she's, she's fantastic, you know, she's written a lot about um, the, the emergency regime of the UK, but also in Turkey, and she talks about these entrenched emergencies. You know, where countries where emergency is not the no rule, uh, the, the uh, what's the word? Exception. Exception, thank you, of course. Um, uh, as accepted, expected, but the norm, right? Turkey, um, um, during 1923, when the republic was established, and 2002, when state of emergency in the Kurdish region was formally abolished, so the 79 years, half of it was, there was some form of state of exception in Turkey, martial law or state of emergency across the country or only in the Kurdish region. Um, so let's look at the European response then. Um, so what, what did Europe say, right, this whole time? Um, well, the first, the political response. You know, when 1980 coup happened, um, the Council of Europe did not suspend Turkey's membership, although it can, right? Um, and you see the mechanism here. Uh, when a member state is found to uh, have to engage in a serious violation of human rights and rule of law, this may lead to suspension. Actually, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe recommended this. But you know the um, the decisions are made by the Committee of Ministers, which is the executive organ, organ which represents member states. They did not. Um, they declined. This was used only against Greece um, after the, the military um, regime, the coup d'état in Greece, um, and actually Greece was going to be suspended. Um, and when the the generals realized this was going to happen, they left themselves. So the question is, you know, why wasn't this activated, right? When you had a military regime also in Turkey, um, and then of course there is the interstate complaint. Um, now. There are two ways of filing a petition in the European Court of Human Rights. The one, the most common way, the most usually way, the most familiar one is individual petitions. Individuals go and file a petition, right? This used to be option. This was optional uh, when the convention was designed and court was um, created. And until '98, this was optional. So it was up to the member states to recognize that right for their individuals. Turkey recognized it in 1987. So when all of this was happening individuals, could, torture survivors, for example, couldn't go to the European Court of Human Rights. And then you have the second mechanism, the interstate complaint. States can actually complain against each other. The first to do that against Turkey was Cyprus, as I mentioned earlier, several times. But that concern, those applications concern Turkey's gross human rights abuses in Cyprus, not the ones in Turkey. The first and only time that this mechanism was invoked against Turkey was um, in response to the coup d'etat by five um, uh, European uh, member states. Now, this is a very um, interesting um, story, which I will not get into detail. But um, there, you know, the, in the complaint, they raised really very serious, serious allegations, you know, widespread torture, the dissolution of the parliament, the dissolution of political parties, martial courts, um, uh, 45 days of, um, you know, sort of detention periods without any um, engagement of judicial authorities or judicial review. Um, um, dissolution of trade unions, um, the prosecution and arrest of thousands of members of trade unions. So it was a really very um, strong uh, complaint. And yet this case resulted in a friendly settlement in late 85. I mean, this was partly because by then Turkey had transitioned to democracy, right? There was a civilian government. Um, but then when you look at actually, 
I mean, of course, that, that shouldn't be the only reason, right? You have to really see some substantial progress. Um, and really, these countries settled um, on the basis of very vague assurances on the part of the Turkish government. You know, nothing, none of sort of the, 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 the 45 days of, uh, for example, um, detention without judicial review was still in the books. There were political prisoners in prison. There was no amnesty. Um, there were still, you know, torture was going on, etc. Um, but, you know, they sort of like let Turkey um, off the hook. I interviewed um, one of um, a, a former judge from Turkey at the European Court of Human Rights, Reza Turman, who then became a member of the parliament. It was fascinating, actually, because he used to, and I didn't know that, before being a judge of the European Court of Human Rights, he used to be a diplomat in the foreign ministry in Turkey for a long time, a career diplomat. But he also was working um, at the uh, embassy, the representation of Turkey to the European Court of Human Rights. So he was involved in this whole process. And he said, for example, one reason, because I asked him, you know, why did they settle? He said, first of all, you know, there was big public pressure on these governments to do something. But once they filed the petition, they were kind of that public pressure eased. And then they had, of course, all kinds of interests. Um, and Turkey used this again. The Turkish government used this against them. For example, the government um, threatened to uh, cancel a bid that Sweden had to build tramways or something in Turkey um, if they did not settle the case. So, so this was sort of the, and then Kaminga says, wrote that actually the US also pressured these countries to settle because of Turkey's geostrategic interests, etc. So the case was settled. Um, I will not talk about the EU, but you know, probably the questions will come. Now, what did the European Court of Human Rights say, right? Well, now on the 1980 coup, this friendly settlement, you know, this, when this interstate complaint resulted in a friendly settlement, the court did not have to approve it. You know, it was not, there was no legal obligation. The court could, um, at the time, the European Commission of Human Rights, because it was a dual system. Um, the, the commission could still have press, and that actually was the expectation, because the court, commission really took this case seriously, held a uh, fact-finding hearing in Strasbourg, went to Turkey to hold fact-finding hearings in Diyarbakir, in Istanbul, Ankara. The expectation was, a, was really a report. Um, and yet, very unexpectedly, the commission approved um, uh, this uh, settlement. Kaminga at the time said, this is a stamp of approval and will encourage um, the continuation of widespread and systematic abuses in Turkey, torture especially. Well, of course, he was right, right? Um, and then when we look at the court's more recent involvement um, in the 1990s, you know, during the, um, in the context of emergency rule in the Kurdish region, um, I mean, there was, of course, the state, this court made very significant contributions um, just by, for example, holding fact-finding hearings in Turkey, in the Arbaker, you know, uh, at a time when the Turkish state was just denying anything, that, you know, that, that there were enforced disappearances, that there were extrajudicial executions, that there were village destruction, evictions, torture, was just completely denying it and, um, you know, counter blaming the, uh, the, the lawyers and victims of fabricating these allegations, of uh, blaming the PKK, etc. So just the fact that the court actually listened to these, and in some cases physically, literally, these applicants was, of course, profound. Um, so these, you know, Kurdish peasants who couldn't speak even Turkish came and testified before the European Court judges in Kurdish, and they, they, you know, they told their story. So that's really important, this sort of like truth revelation function. And the court, you know, has, I mean, empowered the victims in that sense, and also was quite flexible in its procedural rules, um, expanded the scope of human rights. You know, these cases really wrote, I mean, open any textbook on the European Court of Human Rights, you will see not, like reference after reference to the, the, the Kurdish cases. They really wrote the law. 
um, first disappearance cases, you know, first extrajudicial execution. Uh, just like in the American Court of Human Rights. But of course, unlike the inter-American system, Turkey was the only one, right, in Europe. So it was really, and the court really sort of expanded the scope um, of this and gave some very important judgments. But, and this is a big but, the court, for example, has never ever, uh, and this was the case also um, in the UK, um, never questioned the emergency regime in Turkey. We took it for granted, right? I mean, basically said, well, if there's, if the national authorities think it's necessary, then it must be necessary. So I'll only engage in proportionality analysis and look at the measures that you've adopted and see whether they are um, uh, proportional to, 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 to the um, interest that you're seeking. Um, and in case after case, the victims and the, the lawyers, you know, what they were trying, the lawyers, of course, were trying to get, they were trying to get the court say, there is a state practice here, or in the European Court of Human Rights speak, administrative practice, right? There's state violence, there's a state policy, and this is systematic, keeps going on, right? So say it. The court has never said it. Came quite close to, actually, over time, saying something along the line. In one case, for example, the court said, there's a pattern of disappearance in this region between 1992-1996. And at the same time, the non-judicial organs of the, of the Council of Europe and the UN at the time, you know, committee, um, uh, CPT, the Committee Against Torture, special rapporteurs of, uh, of the UN, were saying that there was systematic torture in Turkey, systematic enforcing disappearances. But the court just did not get there. And then again, case after case, um, the Kurds also said to the applicants, this is happening to us because we're Kurdish. Or, and because we, of our political opinions on the Kurdish question, right? It's only the Kurds, this only happens in the Kurdish region and only against the Kurds. So they wanted the court to find a um, violation of Article 14, discrimination. And again, the court never ever did that. To this day, hasn't done that. Um, so this was sort of like the court's um, early engagement, um, sort of concerning the 1990s. And then there was a new era. Um, all of this, the, the story I'm saying is occurring against the background, of course, of Turkey-EU relations. And that's a big, big part of it. I discuss this in detail in, in the book. And whatever progress Turkey has made to actually execute the European Court of Human Rights through you know, reforms, that only happened after Turkey was declared a member, a candidate for EU uh, membership. That was then that Turkish government started to take the European Court of Human Rights seriously. Before, it was just not engaging with the court at all, you know, just denying it, not producing information, etc. So there was that. But then, um, I mean, I sort of didn't talk about the EU, but of course, in the meantime, you know, the EU made, in my opinion, two major mistakes. One is to declare, to give Turkey a candidate accession status in um, decided, deciding to do that in December 2004. This was a premature decision. I think. It, the, that was a big mistake. And actually, it's interesting because the, the, uh, the EU Council, in making this decision, said, use a language which was really brand new, as they've never done that towards another candidate country. They said Turkey, quote, sufficiently fulfills the Copenhagen political criteria. The language should be fulfills, right? But the AKP has recently come to power. They were you know, doing their best. The military tutelage was a big issue, etc. So, you know, there was progress, and EU saw it, and they wanted to reward it. But soon after, they made the second mistake, and of course it was more uh, detrimental. Um, due to um, domestic um, developments in, in, in Europe, um, you know, Sarkozy and Merkel coming to power, there was of course, as we remember, the constitutional referendum around EU constitutions, etc. Turkey became a really big issue, you know, sort of 
EU started to discuss its identity over Turkey's um, membership. There was resistance, and of course another factor was Cyprus was in. And once Cyprus was a full member, it had veto powers, right? So basically, in 2006 onwards, um, the, uh, and Turkey also did not open the ports um, to Cyprus as it should have done. So all of these very complex factors came together and basically the, the process has halted. Um, and EU was, um, you know, EU's involvement diminished. Um, so that was sort of, and its, it's leverage diminished. At the same time, something else was going on in the European Court of Human Rights and the Council of Europe. I talked about the post-communist enlargement. Turkey, uh, the European Court of Human Rights was already under a big um, caseload, big um, docket crisis, really. But it got really worse after the accession, and you know, Russia came in, and Poland, and Hungary, etc. Thousands of new cases, and the court was paralyzed. Right. So these two factors coming together, um, from mid-2000s onwards, there was a shift in judicial reform in Turkey. And the government basically sought two goals, two large goals. One is diminish the number of judgments, Strasbourg judgments, and new applications. And the other is consolidate AKP's rule over the judiciary and military. I will not talk about the background to it. Maybe we can discuss, if you want, you know, why in 2007, what happened in 2007 and 2008 that led the AKP to actually want to um, consolidate its powers. So with regards to the first of course, when um, the government said, you know, AKP government said, okay, I'm going to cooperate with you, Strasbourg, and, you know, let's do something to, you know, sort of uh, get, let me get some burden out of you. It found a very open and cooperative um, uh, a partner in Strasbourg. The court was, had a big interest in cooperating with Turkey. So basically, in three different um, occasions, the, the Turkish government created basically new domestic remedies, because that's the general rule, right? You have to first exhaust domestic remedies if they're effective before going to um, Strasbourg. Again, I will not talk much about it, but you see the introduction of constitutional complaint. Remember how in the beginning I said these, uh, the victims went to the constitutional um, court? That's new. That's been since 2012. So that adds a, another layer, right, before going to Strasbourg. And then in 2004, much of my early work is actually you know, focused on this. Um, what the government did was they, they passed a compensation law uh, to provide compensation to you know, victims of state violence in, in the Kurdish region. Of course, didn't frame it as such. Um, and they used this new mechanism that the European Court of Human Rights had adopted in this reform process, the, called the pilot judgment, which enabled the court to say, all right, there's an effective, there's a remedy here, it's effective. And then the court rejected 1,500 um, petitions at once. And these were petitions concerning gross human rights abuses. And this is really striking because in its earlier jurisprudence in the 90s, the court said, in pretty much every judgment said effective remedy means not just compensation, but also prosecution of the perpetrators, right? You have to identify who's done this and, you know, sort of prosecute them. This law was just about compensation. And the court really did not address this, its own case law and found it to be effective. And then there was this other um, mechanism that I will not um, talk about. So the, and the second goal that um, AKP was pursuing was um, to, um, to, to um, consolidate its power, right, as I mentioned earlier, vis-a-vis -vis the judiciary and the military. Um, in 2010, constitutional um, um, changes were made in the constitution, which was also adopted in the referendum. And what we see now going on in Turkey, I mean, of course, looking back, you know, um, those who at the time supported um, these um, amendments as, you know, sort of progress, um, 
understand that much of the lay, you know, sort of groundwork was um, had started then, right? The, 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 these amendments changed the composition and powers of high courts, including constitutional court, appointment of members of the high courts, etc. At the time, this was a very contentious in issue in Turkey. There was a big debate. Some, um, you know, d um, uh, said that you know it was court packing. That's what the court was doing. Uh, the government was doing. Um, others, as I said earlier, um, you know, because of the recognition of constitutional complaint, introduction of ombudsman, several sort of uh, human rights reforms, you know, others, including myself, we were supportive. Uh, and I actually voted yes. Um, so what did the, so th this is the new era, right? This is the, this, this is the reality we are in now. And so what did the court, how did the court respond to this? Now on state violence um, and state of emergency, uh, a de facto state of emergency in the Kurdish region, um, as I said earlier, the court has so far, there's been 34 applications, and the court has rewarded interim measures in only five of them, cases where individuals were seriously injured and you know, needed medical help. And it's really interesting this happened for the first time in the history of the court where the interim measure was for the court to say to the government, send an ambulance, make sure that you know, these people are hospitalized. Because interim measures is a mechanism that the court very, very cautiously uses, mostly in cases concerning deportation of refugees. So this is really a first. But it was on five cases, and four of these individuals actually died before help went. Um, and in the others, the court just rejected. Although its rule says, you know, the court can award interim measures where there's a risk of irreparable harm. The cases are not rejected. This doesn't mean that the court will not issue rulings. Actually, the rulings in these cases are expected. You know, the court will find violations, of course. State of emergency rule. This part I'll just, you know, sort of, um, this is sort of the last part of my work and I haven't done, you know, much work on it really yet. You know, we know what's going on in Turkey since July, right? Sort of, you know, more than 100,000 people dismissed, etc. Uh, people in detention. Um, and um, some of these cases went to, for example, a judge who actually lost her job um, by an executive degree. She went to European Court of Human Rights. And the court said, well, you have to first exhaust domestic remedies, go to the constitutional court. At a time, was, as I said earlier, the two members of the Constitutional Court were in jail. Right? Um, the judiciary itself was purged. Um, there are over, um, for, uh, this is sort of one of the latest figures, over 400,000 judges and prosecutors have been dismissed, half of whom are in, in, in prison. Um, and the Turkish Constitutional Court actually declined abstract review of the emergency decrees, right? despite its own case law from the 1990s. The court actually could review whether the decrees, because now there's a rule by decree, that's what the government is doing. You know, the parliament is completely bypassed, sort of executive measure uh, decrees um, one after another. The court could have actually looked whether these decrees are really related to the emergency, whether they're really, these measures are really necessary. The court's own case law requires it, and yet it declined. And ministers of courts also rejected petitions, right? And so now these cases are piling up before the European Court of Human Rights. The Venice Commission of the Council of Europe, again, a non-judicial body, um, issued a very critical report in December 2006, 16, and said, you know, you have to have an ind independent review of these dismissals. You can't just dismiss people. In response to which, AKP adopted a law to establish yet another commission. Right? This is all administrative, basically. Um, this is not, the commission is not yet operational. Everybody's waiting for the commission to be established. We're talking about 100,000 cases, which have to be processed in two years. Um, and, um, and the court, the European Court of Human Rights and the Council of Europe basically has started to finally speak up and say, 
you have to do something about you know these cases, especially high-profile journalists, parliamentarians in jail. Otherwise, we're going to you know review. And the latest development is um, after 13 years, um, the Parliamentary Assembly of Council of Europe took Turkey back into monitoring process. This, of course, is a big defeat um, 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 for, for Turkey. So in conclusion, um, the court's rulings, and I didn't, you know, th there are many other rulings. For example, it's ruling on the electoral threshold. You know, I'm just saying it there. If you ask a question, we can talk about it. But, you know, the, the sort of displays a very depoliticized and non-contextual uh, reading of human rights abuses. The court really addresses these human rights you know, abuses out of their context, out of this whole history that I just talked about, and treating as, it as aberrations, basically, right? Um, it has never addressed this authoritarian nature of Turkey's political legal regime, the fact that all these laws and constitution are the um, legacy of the, of the junta, right? Um, and it legitimized um, undemocratic interventions into democratic rights, and here I'm talking about the electoral threshold case. Um, so why hasn't been the court really been effective in the case of Turkey? I mean, of course, I'm saying this. I am obviously very aware, we all are aware, of the limitations of external uh, influence right. I mean, I, I'm not expecting magical uh, engagement on the part of the European Court of Human Rights. But of course, in light of this very positive literature um, about the court, this is an intriguing question, right? So could the court actually have made a difference? Um, I think in the early phase, in the 90s, um, counterterrorism was a big factor. And that's something that really distinguishes cases like Spain, Portugal, Greece, you know, the transition from military dictatorship to democracy. Everyone supports that, right? And everyone is against the military dictatorships. The dissidents were innocent people, right? Civilians. Whereas when you have the PKK and an armed conflict, that really looms large. And the court has been very differential to the counterterrorism logic from the beginning. Um, Reluctance to address discrimination claims this is not limited to Turkey. This is in general to Turkey. The court doesn't like it, actually. Um, and maybe fatigue, too. Maybe the court was just tired of, um, of, of the Kurdish cases, you know, one case after another, thousands of cases. And of course, the enlargement. This has been a big issue. Um, it's just a, it's a paralyzed court. It has no interest, really, to sort of say the same thing in every individual case. Um, Turkey's EU accession process, I mean, I think the, the sort of the high <laughs> peak of it um, there was an understanding in Turkey for us, for many of us, and also in Europe, that there was a new Turkey, right? That Turkey has changed. And this also affected, in my um, opinion, and opinion of many lawyers, the court, the European Court of Human Rights' jurisprudence, um, sort of this power sharing, right, with, with, with the Turkish judiciary. Um, and so the court, you know, the subsidiarity principle is, is a major principle of the convention system. The understanding that, you know, the court is only subsidiary to the domestic judges, the domestic court systems. It's really they should they should implement the European Convention on Human Rights. The court is only there to do oversight. Right? Um, but of course, as I said earlier, um, it's not just about external factors. Obviously, I mean there are, um, you know, uh, Professor Kasaba is here. There are you know historical reasons um, for Turkey's uh, lack of democracy. Very strong uh, state tradition going back to the Ottoman times. Extremely weak civil society very weak institutions, lack of rule of law tradition. A very authoritarian political culture which deems democracy to mean majoritarianism. This Erdogan rhetoric is very similar, of course, to the Menderes of the 1950s, the understanding that, okay, we won the ballot, we rule now. Um, a 
very discriminatory and exclusionary state ideology, which is blended in nationalism and political Islam, and of course the armed conflict um, for the Kurdish region. Um, external factors, as I said earlier, occasional mild progress really was due to European pressure, but this was always driven by realpolitik. Where the norms of European institutions collided with the real you know, interest of member states, the latter really prevailed as in the case of the settlement of the interstate complaint, as I mentioned earlier, the refugee deal now, right? Um, the Europe really, you know, Semih Kemalmaz is a, a well-known uh, constitutional scholar in Turkey, and human rights um, um, scholar. He said, you know, back in 1989, you know, that this special type of democracy, Europe has never really questioned it. They just, you know, took, took it as a given in a way. Um, so while this is my final slide, why does it all matter? Um, I mean, obviously, I hope I made the case that Turkey is clearly much more than a footnote um, for the ECHR system, but not just for the ECHR system. It's really, um, you know, when, when there's, especially these days when there's such a big backlash against, you know, globalism, global um, human rights um, regimes and institutions, um, you know, scholarship has to really start to speak about this, right? This challenge is posed to these transnational human rights regimes everywhere in the world by these authoritarian regimes. Now, of course, there's, you know, Hungary, Poland, etc. Um, but that narrative has to start from Turkey because it really started with Turkey in the, in the European case. Um, and, and there also needs to be an engagement and acknowledgement of the responsibility of the European institutions, especially the European Court of Human Rights, which really has enabled, tolerated and legitimized um, state violence and authoritarianism in Turkey um, for decades. Thank you.